Amen. And be seated. Because uh, you know what just happened? Uh, I hate what just happened. Because I mispronounced this family's last name. Yeah, I called them the Garnots. It's the Garntos. And here's what I hate about it, is that I made that mistake in front of you. Because this is what it does. This creates shame that I failed in front of you and I failed them. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's a very real thing. And when you have that experience in front of people, here's what it does. Underneath this is a whole cachet of stories about shame and where I've messed up. In fact, when I was sitting there singing, it reminded me of a family that I married five years ago and I pronounced them man and wife and I called them the Patrones. That wasn't their last name. <laughs> we all laugh about it now, but uh, guess what they give me every Christmas? <laughs> so y'all laugh, but that's real and we're gonna come back to it. That's real time and Jesus gave me that because what I'm about to talk about I, my fear is that I'm going to mishandle it, and my fear is that you're going to miss it when what we're about to talk about is gold. Like we're talking life-changing kind of stuff. So we've been studying Nehemiah, and I had this really unusual experience. About a week ago, I was at the zoo with a two-year-old. Have you been to the zoo with a two-year-old? Let me tell you what two-year-olds do. Two-year-olds have one word. You know what that one word is? It's, well, they got that too. That's, that's my word. But their word is why. Like, it seems, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, it seems to be, the, the, it's the question to every statement. Well, this is a monkey. Why? Well, because it's a monkey. I, it's a monkey. And so we were walking with my granddaughter, who is precious. She is just an angel. Like, she really has wings. She floats. And we walked past this child. Yeah, don't laugh. All right. And we walked by this child in distress. And this child wasn't just like, huh. This child was like in very loud, disruptive distress. And we're walking by, and she saw this other child and looked at me and said, why? And I said, well, she seems to be having a hard day. And her question to me was, Why? And I said to her, well, because life is hard. And her question to me was, why? At that moment, I had a decision to make. I could deep dive into the philosophy of we are sinners. You have an ancestor called Adam and Eve, and they've thrown us under the curse of sin, and it has cursed all of the world. Why? I said, but I have no words for you. I failed. That was the extent. This is what we're going to talk about, because we've been talking about leadership, and we've been talking about vision for the last four weeks. And what we've been talking about is that Jesus have, has equipped you to be a leader, whether it's a leader in this city or this country or in your corporate office or in your home. But most importantly, he's equipped you to be a leader in your own life, and that God is calling you to mature and grow up in the leadership that he's calling you into, not so that you would know life, but also life would flow from you. And we talked about, we've been talking about vision, how God gives us vision, and if we are here, 
<laughs> in the bucket of shame, it's not, but that this journey to this vision is not a clear journey. It's actually, it's a crazy journey that has lots of twists and turns. And if we know that, we also know on that journey, we need courage because we're going to face things that we didn't plan on facing, things that are hard, like injustice. And we have to have courage to face those things. But last week we talked about we also need to have character because we're going to face those things in us. And we have to have the character to face those things in us and deal with them. But this week what we're going to talk about is if you don't answer this question right here, I'm not sure you're going to get there. I'm not sure there's anything else that motivates us more than the why. So I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek. He is an author, and he's written a lot of books on business, which I'm a huge fan of business writers. In fact, I was reading this week Chuck Blakeman, who wrote this book called Making Money is Killing Your Business. The title alone is worth the price of that book, isn't it? And he basically said, answering why gives us clarity. Clarity gives us hope. And hope mitigates risk and causes us to take action we wouldn't otherwise take. Simon Sinek would say that the why is the hardest place to lead from, but it's the only place of strength to lead from. If you've read his book, Starting With Why, and I think the whole title of that book is How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action, he talks about the golden circle. And man, we're running out of board here. But what he says is, if you can imagine, this is the big circle, that the outer circle is what? And he says, most everybody and most every company can tell you what they do. That's not a hard thing for them to tell you. Like, you can tell me what you did yesterday. The next circle inside that's a little harder to describe is how. How do you do what you do? But Simon would say that the most powerful place to work from is why do you do what you do? Let me read you a quote. Very few people or companies can clearly articulate why they do what they do. When I say why, I don't mean to make money. That's a result. By why, I mean what is your purpose, your cause, or your belief? What is your, why does your company exist? Why do you get out of bed every morning? Why should anybody care? When most organizations or people think, act, or communicate, they often do so from the outside in, from what to why. And for good reasons. They go from clearest things to the fuzziest things. We say what we do, we sometimes say how we do it, but we rarely say why we do what we do. So we're going to be reading Nehemiah today because Nehemiah jumps right here. And hopefully we can learn something from Nehemiah that we can bring into our own lives. The golden nugget that has something to do with this right here. Thank you, Jesus. So, our reader, Emily, where are you? And guys, y'all should literally applaud her because there are so many Hebrew names in this passage right now. <laughs> and if any of you correct her, you're reading next week, all right? Oh, I'm definitely going to mispronounce the names, but don't worry. Good. We love it. Embrace it. So she's in chapter 8, and she's going to be starting in verse 1. But let me, let me give you a little heads up. So Nehemiah, if you've not been here, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of uh, Xerxes, no, Artaxerxes, uh, the Persian Empire, and he had sent him back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and to rebuild the gates. 
And so they had rebuilt the wall. They rebuilt the gates. We've been studying this for the last two months. And at the end of chapter 7, it says, The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, the temple servants, along with certain of the people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their own towns. So the wall is finished. The gates are up. And everybody has kind of gone back home, which is kind of odd. Not a lot of people were living inside the city. They did the work, and they've gone back home. And now Nehemiah and the prophet Ezra is calling everybody back for a special event. And that's where we are. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, and on his left were Pediah, Mishael, um, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, yes. and Meshulam? Whoa. Yes. It doesn't stop there. Keep going. No, keeps going. <laughs> Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he, as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathai, uh, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, yeah. instructed the people <laughs> in the law. And while the people were standing, uh, while the people were standing there, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send, send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Awesome job. Lord, we pray that uh, you would take what is read. You promise with your word that it does not return void. Would it do its work in our hearts? Even if it feels it's working against us, Lord, work for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's try to get our heads around what we just heard. All the people had come back into the city. It was the seventh month. It was the first day of the seventh month, which if we did some deep dive into Jewish culture, we would understand that this was the first day of the festival season, and this was the festival day of the trumpets. It was the day when the trumpets would be blown, 
and the beginning of the festivities and the festivals that the temple would actually host and the people would come and participate in. Because the festivals had two purposes for the people of God. One was for them to look back and see God's faithfulness, but that was only half of it. The other half was for them to look forward to the promises of God. So when you think about the festivals of trumpets, where in Scripture do we know about trumpets that's going forward? Yeah, in Revelation, when the Lord returns, the trumpet will sound, and God will descend. So this festival was just to remind them of what God had done and to show them what he was going to do. So these people all came back in. And remember, these people had been in exile. Like, they had been uh, taken by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians into slavery. This is 70 years ago that this city was destroyed. So the people that are gathering there in the temple, in the courtyards of the temple, were children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren of those that had been taken into exile. In fact, there probably wasn't anybody, maybe a few, that were there that remembered when the temple was actually working and functioning and the festival of the trumpets was done and they saw it firsthand. Most of the people there had no context except for the stories that were told them by their grandparents and their great-grandparents when they were in slavery. So think about this moment. All these people are coming together. They've rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. The temple is now opening up. The prophet's in town. And they're about to experience for the first time as God's people the blowing of the trumpets and the reading of God's word. It's a big deal. Big deal. And so they all come in and they built a platform for Ezra. If you want to read about Ezra, you can go to the book before Nehemiah, the book of Ezra. And he's contemporary, and he writes about his own accounts in this story. But they built this big platform for him, and he, everybody's gathering, and he's got the Word of God out. You know, he's got the Torah. He's got it all out in front of him. And Ezra is this imposing figure, and everybody is chanting his name, Ezra, Ezra. And he breaks into free bird. It's crazy. It's true. <laughs> he was a rock star. <clears throat> Go read it. That's one of the names. Anyway, and so Ezra is up there, and he begins to read, but he's got Levites, priests, all over the crowds of people because not everybody can hear him. And so also the book of God is written in Hebrew. Nobody spoke Hebrew. They all spoke Aramaic. And so these Levites are out in the crowd, and they're on their own platforms, and they're translating in real time Hebrew into their language. This is what Ezra is saying. And then they begin to explain what it is that he's reading. So they got teachers scattered throughout the whole round, uh, crowd of thousands of people that are repeating and then teaching what's going on. So there's a lot of debate about what he was reading because it says that they read for five hours. And you can't read the whole Torah, the first five books of the Bible in five hours. That's, you can't do that. A lot of theologians believe what he did is he went straight to Deuteronomy and he read the book of Deuteronomy, and the Levites interpreted it. If that's true, let me tell you what the book of Deuteronomy is about. It's Moses giving his last dying speeches. He says, before I take my last breath, I've got to write out <clears throat> my speeches to God's people. And he tells the history all the way from them going into slavery in Egypt and then coming out and going through the wilderness and into the promised land and all their relationships with God. And let me tell you the gist of what he said. How far can you jump? I mean, literally, do you think you could jump five feet? Two feet. 
Let's say that there's somebody in here. Is there anybody in here that thinks that from a standing still jump, you could jump seven feet? Come on. Henry, where are you, man? I know you could do that, all right? You could do it. You, you're a tall guy, man. Your legs, you could stretch out more than seven feet. Let's say that somebody in this room actually could jump to that wall from a standing still jump. That'd be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? So let's say that we take them to the edge of the Grand Canyon and we go, we think you can do it. Come on. Ready? You may be the best jumper in the world, but there's no way you're getting across the Grand Canyon. That's what Moses did. He said, let me teach you the law. You think you're good? Hear the law. And he lowered, he, they just, the law came down. God is holy. He is pure. He is unlike you. He is unblemished. Everything about him has integrity and truth to it. We are not like him. God is right. God is pure. We are not like him. God is saying that if you want to be my people, you have to follow the laws and you have to keep the laws and you have to be good enough. And what did the people do? They wept. They wept because they said, it's too much. I, there's no way. We're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and I think I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I haven't killed anybody. Some of the Ten Commandments I've kept right, but there ain't no way I can jump across that. God, if that's how holy you are, if that's how different you are, if that's how pure you are, there's no way we can get to you. There's no way. In fact, this shame that's in our life is real. Because it's based on real stuff that I've done and real stuff that I've left undone. And it is too heavy on my back. I can't jump that far. And they wept. And they wept bitterly. And they realized all that has happened to us is because of the sins of our fathers. So what chance do we have? Are we any better than them? And right in the middle of this grief... Nehemiah steps up and says, whoa, stop the train, just a minute. Ezra, take a break. And he looked at the people and he goes, go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks. Do you know what sweet drinks are? They're sweet. They're sweet drinks. Wine. Go home and eat some good food and sip some wine and send some to, the, to those that don't have anything. If there are people around you that are poor, bring them into your house and share all that you have. Why? Because this day is holy to our God. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What have we done? We built a wall. How did we do it? We did it together. Why did we do it? Hmm. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah has taken us to the heart of the why. Really? I mean, come on. Wasn't the wall their strength? That's why they rebuilt it, right? Wasn't their political alliances that they were making throughout the entire book, wasn't that their strength? Wasn't their connection to uh, the Persian Empire and Arxaxerxes and Nehemiah's relationship, wasn't that their strength? Wasn't their unity? I mean, we're all here to get, wasn't that their strength? Wasn't their military power as a people that everybody was growing afraid of in that area? Wasn't their economic power? I mean, they stood on the wall with swords. No. Nehemiah is saying, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Not your joy in the Lord. 
not your joy at being at church, not at your joy at the things that God says to you, not your joy at the things that maybe he's done for you, not your joy because your life is turning out the way maybe you want it to turn out, not your joy, it's his joy that is your strength. In other words, our purpose, our power, our motivation, the big why right here is to be joyed over. I don't even know if that's a word. In fact, I want to tell you that it's the whole reason Midtown exists. When people ask joyful, we want your community, this whole community to be joyful. We want this whole place to be a joy factory. Why? We want you to be joy super spreaders all over the city. In your relationships that struggle, that they'd be replaced with joy. That your hardships at work, you would find joy. That in your poverty and your hunger is now flooded with joy. That racism in this city would be overshadowed by joy. That politics would be marked by joy. Okay, that's, that's unbelievable. All right, scratch that one. But the other one's true. That artists would see, be super spreaders of joys. That everything we do here is for joy. In fact, when we teach about maturity here, which maybe you've heard us say this, we exist to help you. All my resources, everything I have, I leverage towards something for you. And you know what the thing is that he's leveraging everything for? He says, we are admonishing, teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That Paul labored to make you, you mature. And it really is the mark of maturity, isn't it? It's the mark of maturity when I'm able to now live in the joy of the Lord and that joy now overcomes me, overwhelms me, and then begins to flow through me. And I bring joy into every situation that I am, I'm going into, because I bring Jesus into every situation that I go into. And everywhere Jesus goes, the joy of the Lord goes. <laughs> so what is the joy of the Lord? In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. This is talking about Jesus. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So that at the cross, he could take away our shame. That's what he did at the cross. He took away her shame. And what is his joy? What was the joy set before Jesus that he would go endure the cross? You. You're his joy. Jesus went to the cross for you because it's his joy to renew you, to take you from death to life, to take you from what you weren't to something you could never dream you could possibly be, to take someone who is spiritually dead to make us spiritually alive. What was impossible for you to do, to jump that Grand Canyon, Jesus said, I can jump the Grand Canyon. And now I'm going to lay down my life so that that Grand Canyon is no longer a gap for you. For who, who knew no sin became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's what Christ did for us. And Nehemiah was saying, <clears throat> this joy, this satisfaction, this contentment is ours in the Lord. John Piper, I love this one statement, he said that 
God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. What if the joy of the Lord is actually deep satisfaction? What if the Lord joying over me is the source of my rest? What if the Lord joying over me is the place of my contentment? What if that is the secret power of my life? Because think about when it's not. What becomes our why? Why do you do what you do? Why do you get up in the morning? Why are you living your life the way that you're living it? Well, I got so much more to say here, but I got to get to this. Because here is the saboteur of your contentment. This right here is the enemy. Why do we do what we do? Because it has been done for us. We are joyed over. If you don't know the power of being joyed over, take it away from your children. And you'll begin to see the power and the hunger within their hearts to be joyed over. They will move heaven and earth to get your joy. They will do everything they can possibly do to get your satisfaction, to get your contentment, to get your pleasure, to get your approval. And just like little children, if we don't walk into the approval of our Father, another message begins to speak. See, what's crazy about us as people, uh, unlike any of the creatures we saw at the zoo, there wasn't one creature that we saw at the zoo that was a storyteller. Not one of them. I'm sorry, there wasn't a bear in the corner reading a book to the children. Now, children, let us talk about it. But we are storytellers. And you know what we do with stories? We tell them to ourselves all the time. And you're doing that too. You have stories about yourself. Just like when I mispronounced Jill's name, (laughs) I began to tell stories that had evidence in the past. And here was the story. There you go, Drawn. You screwed it up once again. You know, when I became a Christian, before I became a Christian, I was not a good person. I was not a churchgoer, you know. I wasn't good at playing the game. Some of y'all are. And uh, I know, you are. You just Anyway, and <clears throat> so everybody in my hometown knew what a train wreck I was. And because my life was a train wreck, I created train wrecks. And I could give you a lot of stories about the friends that I grew up with, and most of them are not alive. A lot of them are in prison. Like, it was, it was dark. So when I became a Christian, I went to college. I was a brand new Christian. And I can tell you this, there was no way in heaven or in hell that I was going to tell any of those people about my past. Because they all looked so good. They all knew the books of the Bible. Like, they could quote stuff from Scripture. I'm like, how can you do that? Like, I, they, they could pray. Somebody would say, would you like to pray? And they would say, yes. That would have freaked me out. Are you kidding me? Like, out loud? Like, people do that kind of stuff. And I took a huge step back because here's what shame says to you. You're not worthy of belonging, and you're not worthy of being loved. You better get something straight in your life before you go public so that you will be acceptable to others, and you're lovable. And I felt like I had to, why am I acting the way I'm acting? So that I can clean up my act so that I will be accepted and overshadow my shame. What I didn't understand at the time was that the cure for shame is vulnerability. The cure for shame is to be enjoyed over. The cure for shame is to come into the light of love and feeling the warm embrace of a father who says, I know it all. Kisses, kisses, kisses. I've seen it all. Kisses, kisses. In fact, I know more about you than you know about you. 
In fact, you're a lot worse than you think you are. You are. You're horrible. Kisses, kisses, kisses. But you're mine. You're mine, and I want you to rest in the contentment. Psalm 131, I am like a weaned child in the lap of my mother. That is a picture also of Jesus. Jesus saying, let this place be your satisfaction and your contentment. Why? Because then it changes everything that I do with the what? Because it's removed the shame. And what I didn't realize then is that I had an enemy. And that enemy wants to use shame to destroy me. Take a little bit of time, and I'm going to close. This is The Soul of Shame by Kirk Thompson. Maybe you've read it, but he says something here that I think is better than how I could say it. He says, the premise of this book, then, is that shame is not just a consequence of something our first parents did in the Garden of Eden. It is the emotional weapon that our enemy uses to corrupt our relationship with God and each other. It disintegrates any and all gifts of vocational vision and creativity. These gifts include any area area of endeavor that promotes goodness, beauty, and joy in and for the lives of others, whether that be teaching our first graders, loving our spouse well, managing forests, conducting healing prayer services, creating a new medical technology, offering psychotherapy, or composing symphonies. Shame is a primary means to prevent us from using the gifts we have been given, and those gifts enable us to flourish as light-bearing communities of Jesus followers who work to create space for others who wish to join in and do so. Why? We are joyed over. And what is joyed over does? It stops shame and allows me to walk into the light and publicly acknowledge, yes, that's who I am in this community and be seen and be cared for and be loved so that I'm joyed over, I can joy over you. I know. I wish I had more words to convince you. All I can trust is that the Holy Spirit now is working and saying, is it outrageous for you to think that the whole purpose of your life is to let yourself be joyed over? Is it so outrageous to think that the whole purpose of your career, your parenting, your marriage, your own personal life, the way you view sexuality, the way you view money, all of that stuff, that the center of all of it is that you would let yourself be joyed over, that you would actually hear a father who is dancing over you and singing over you with celebration and going, they're mine, they're mine, they're mine. Because I'll tell you what the judgment seat of God is going to look like. It's all going to be seen. Ultimate vulnerability. And what is our Savior going to say? Oh, yeah, Randy's a lot worse than y'all thought. But he's mine. He's all mine. He's all mine. Oh, let's show some more. See how gross that is? Oh, but I love this guy. I'm crazy about this guy. Are you kidding me? I gave everything I had for him. That's how precious he is to me. How dare any of you put shame on that? Because I covered that shame. Now I want you to see the glory of who he is because he is mine. That's what Nehemiah was saying to the people. We're not a wall. We're not a city. We are God's people. We are the place that he puts his joy. That is our strength. Is that your strength? Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, this is too important to pass by. This is too important because shame so loud in our lives wants to say it's impossible. How can I be loved and accepted? It's impossible. No one would know that. 
or do that if they knew that about me. Lord, I pray for freedom today. I pray, Father, that we'd allow ourselves to be joyed over, that we'd allow ourselves to hear the words of our Father, well done, that we'd allow ourselves to hear the love of the one who loves us speak into our ears and say, let me love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.